name is Pastor Dave. I'm glad to be with you all this morning. Uh, we're going to be opening in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and start flipping over there. If you have a phone, you can find it there as well, or you can just kind of follow along with the slides. And you heard the passage read earlier by, by Jeff. Uh, before I get going, a, a quick announcement. Uh, you heard last week that uh, we've begun uh, in keeping with our approved budget and our strategic uh, plan for this year, we've, we've started a search for a worship arts director. And so that team has involved uh, Kay Broughton from the first service, our, our choir director. It's involved uh, Susie Tomolino. Uh, it's uh, Eric who plays piano and an electric guitar with us in the contemporary service. And then Jerry uh, Hernbloom and myself have been a part of that search team. And we have a candidate with us today. Uh, Laura Harris is joining us. And so I uh, just invite you to welcome her with me. We're thankful to have her with us as we consider the Lord's path for us. And we'll have more communication for you about that soon. So anticipate communication. If you have questions, feel free to bring them to me or to the elders at the church. Uh, we're earnestly looking to the Lord and seeking his wisdom in this, as are the Harrises. So. Uh, but we're turning to the Lord and his word in Matthew chapter 9, and as I think about this passage and what is the reason we would look to Jesus today, why does he matter today? He gives us a new way of seeing. He teaches us a new way to see those around us, to see him, to see the world itself. He teaches us to see truly and clearly up close. But there's something that happens in this passage that keeps folks from seeing Jesus, from seeing truly and clearly, and it's that they, they misinterpret him. Maybe you've had this happen yourself. There's, there's nothing perhaps that's more painful, that's more disconcerting than when people will not accept you as you are, when you're being honest with them. You can present them with all the evidence of your integrity, but yet they will misinterpret you and think the worst of you. Maybe you've had that happen to you. Maybe you have that going on right now. It could happen in your family, in your workplaces. Any public-facing person, whether a pastor or someone who serves in office for our government, they will face this at some point. You will be misinterpreted. And Jesus faces that here. I remember last year, there was a moment I was preaching through the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And interestingly, in Psalm 37, verse 9, it says that the meek shall inherit the land. And so there's obviously something Jesus is doing there, where he is taking that incredible promise of uh, the Older Testament there in the Psalms, and he's applying it in a new way in those new covenant beatitudes he's offering. So I saw that and I made the Old Testament reading, Psalm 37, and the New Testament reading, of course, was Matthew 5.5 5, because we were preaching through the beatitudes. We were sending these things out in, in paper at the time because of the pandemic. And so people would receive these who were shut in along with the printed sermon manuscript. And uh, one dear couple from the church, people I love, people the Lord loves, they began reading Psalm 37, and it, and it says uh, this, it says, fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And it's, it's offering encouragement to those who are surrounded by those who are stronger than them and have evil intentions. And says, the meek shall inherit the land, those who trust in the Lord. Nevertheless, when they saw the words evildoers and wrongdoers, they immediately assumed upon reading that, that I was targeting them 
or someone else in the congregation, that I was calling them evildoers and wrongdoers for some reason that I never found out why because they wouldn't tell me. I remember being on the phone with them and I'm walking around, it was February and cold and I'm walking around the, the parking lot talking to them like I do sometimes. I'm you know, following my feet along the yellow lines and trying to get through to these dear people. I, I said, did you notice how in the text it has a direct allusion to that Psalm, Matthew 5, 5, how the words are so similar? Could, could you see that? And they said, well, that doesn't matter. I know, we know what you're doing. And then I... Uh, go on and, and say, did, did you read the sermon? Did, did you see anything in there that indicated I was targeting anyone? Well, of course we didn't read it. We didn't want to read it after we saw how you were targeting us with that psalm. It's almost comical, isn't it? But it's painful. It's painful. And these kinds of things happen. And why do we do these things? It's not just them. It can be any of us. We can live life with a lens of suspicion and assume the worst. And Jesus faced that in his day. He will be misinterpreted as we read in this passage. People will assume the worst of him. People in mourning, people who have been hurt in the past, and people who willfully interpret him in bad faith. And we'll learn from this, (laughs) that maybe if we would just allow ourselves to see him as he is, Maybe we'll see something better, something true. If we would risk that hope, maybe there's something better to see than our fears and the things we're suspicious of. But we'll have to take that risk. So I invite you to take that risk with me, to look to Jesus, to let him say who he is today. We'll let him reveal who he is to us and try our best to hear him as he speaks in good faith. When we see him, we'll learn to see. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll dig in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. I pray that you'd lift us, Lord, by your spirit, lift our eyes to see Jesus truly, clearly, to be challenged where we need it, to be comforted and encouraged, just to be reminded of who he is. Come and speak now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So first of all, what we're going to look at in this passage is the things that keep folks from seeing Jesus. It's not exhaustive, but it's, but it's here in the text. What are some things that can keep us from seeing Jesus clearly? And these things can also affect our other relationships as well. The first thing we see is verse 24. We see a mournful criticism. So there's a man who comes to Jesus who's a ruler, so he has some authority, some clout in the community, but he's laying himself before Jesus. He bows down before him and begs him to come and help, and Jesus is moved to come. He follows the man. On the way, we know he heals another woman in his mercy, but then he arrives at the house of this gentleman, and the little girl's dead. And so as you would expect, maybe you've experienced that. It's, it's horrible, that, that tearing of your heart, a child dying. And so they're mourning, wailing, flutes playing dirges. But Jesus, in the midst of all that mourning, he actually tells the mourners to go away. Did you see that? Go away. Because this girl is not dead. She's only sleeping. <laughs> and what do they do? They, they laugh at him. And I wonder about that response. Was it, was it they were laughing at him? They thought he was a pious joke, perhaps? Like, give me a break. You, you think that there's hope in this room. This little girl's dead. 
Are you kidding yourself? Or perhaps it was a defense mechanism because they didn't want to allow someone to come in and offer that kind of a band-aid. Imagine how hurtful it would be if one of us went into someone who was mourning the loss of their child and one of us, me, what if I did this and came and said, oh, she's, she's only sleeping, she'll rise again. That'd be terrible because I have no power to do anything about death. And people have heard snake oil salesmen. People have seen people who misuse religious words and God talk and offer promises they can't fulfill. And they don't want to risk hoping because they've been hurt. And so there's this cynicism. Cynicism is simply a way of being, a way of seeing the world where you're not going to accept something as true without evidence, without something tangible that you can see. It's, it's kind of a reasonable way to live in a lot of ways. But even the, the true cynic, when they go through mourning, that cynicism can become impenetrable. And even with something right in front of you, something as beautiful as the Lord Jesus himself in all of his power and his glory looking at you with eyes of truth that see you to the core. One who has calmed a storm with a word. One who has cast out demons from demon-possessed men. There's no one who could possibly offer those words with integrity but him. But even... Seeing that, these, with their mournful cynicism, they missed it. They missed out on that moment of joy that would come. And then there's folks we'll read about who have misplaced hopes. We find these throughout the Gospels, but surprisingly in this passage, we find two blind men, and it's the blind who see Jesus rightly. But we'll compare their vision, their true vision with those who would have misplaced hopes. Verse 27, Jesus passed on from there after he's healed this little girl, raised her to new life. They follow him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. There in verse 27, son of David is a political title. He is the heir of the king of Israel, King David. This means that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the hope. And many people in the first century as we've said many times in the past months, many people in the first century are hoping for a king who would come and conquer their enemies, who could establish peace without end in the world, who would lift up the name of the Lord high so that the people of God there in Zion, that's how they refer to their land and their people, Zion would be like a mountain lifted up in the world. But sadly, that, that hope, the good hope for peace, for David's son Durang was also tainted with a desire for their enemies to be crushed and for revenge. And this desire oftentimes would cause people to miss who Jesus came to be, the actual Jesus, the actual son of David, the actual Christ who came to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. People would miss him. Peter did this, remember? In Matthew 16, Mark chapter 8, you see Peter asked point blank, but who do you say that I am? And he says the right words. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah but he clearly doesn't get it. He doesn't know what that means because immediately after that, Jesus then tells him about how he is going to be betrayed. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be crucified and die and on the third day rise. And Peter says, no, far be it from you, Lord. He rebukes Jesus, Peter does, for saying this because the Christ can't do that. It's like he's telling the Christ who the Christ should be missing who he is and the hope he's trying to bring, and he will bring. But here in this passage, they don't miss this. They don't foist on Jesus a vision of a political savior. 
They see Jesus for who he is, the true king who is the only one who could have mercy on them and heal them and restore their sight. And when he enters their house, which he did so mercifully, he goes into them and the blind men came to him and Jesus says, do you believe I'm able to do this? They believe. They say, yes, Lord, because even though they were blind, somehow in God's mercy, he enabled them to see. So he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open. And imagine this moment, the first thing you see being Jesus, the Savior. They saw. It's amazing. So we're invited in Jesus to to not have misplaced hopes, but to have our eyes open to see true hope. But that can be a challenge for us who refuse to open our eyes, and that's what we see in the Pharisees in verse 34. Jesus heals a man who's possessed by a demon. He can't speak because he's demon-possessed. Demon possession is something that, uh, believe it or not, today is known, even documented among secular anthropologists. My, my, my first semester anthropology class, we talked about demon possessions and accounts of that. And the professor says, we don't know what to do about it, but we can't dismiss the, the accounts. They don't have secular categories. If you have questions about that, I understand, but we could keep looking to Jesus and learning together in the midst of those questions. But Jesus heals this man, casts out the demon, and he's able to speak. The people are marveling. They're amazed. They've never seen anything in their land like this kind of power, this gracious power that releases people from oppression, enables them to be fully human. But because the people are marveling, because, it seems, the people are turning away after someone else, after this other authority, the Pharisees, I'm interpreting here, but I think it's a reasonable interpretation. The Pharisees feel threatened. (laughs) They don't want people running after Jesus. They want people to come and ask them how to interpret the law. They want people to come to them with their God questions, with their hurts and doubts. But all the people are going to Jesus because they see something more in him. And so they make up a story about him. They intentionally misinterpret him. See this, verse 34. The Pharisee said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. It's a short verse, but think about what is happening there. Willfully misinterpreting Jesus. It is a willful, bad faith interpretation. This is a a mode of being that's sadly common to us in our culture. Willful misinterpretation of one another. And this led to a group of people missing who the Savior was and bringing upon themselves the greatest kind of woe because they were leading people astray from the one hope this world could ever have. And I just want to pause for a moment and think practically about this because if we live in that bad faith way of being, if we willfully misinterpret one another, we may find ourselves doing this with God telling God who he needs to be rather than letting him be who he is, the great I am, who is who he is and doesn't answer to us. We need to know this. And I want you to realize this and help you with this practically. I need the help too. We need to remember together, brothers and sisters, that it is the Lord who sees the heart and we do not. We see actions, we see words, but we don't see the heart Because we are not God. Application number one, you are not God. And so, when you interact with a person, 
Don't read into their intentions. Don't say, I know you did that because, because you don't know the because unless they told you. (laughs) Don't do that. That's what the Pharisees were doing and this leads to a path, a lens of distrust that can lead us away from God's path and can even lead us, if we were like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, to misinterpret God, to miss him. Secondly, when we see a person, give them a chance. Think about this for a moment. Who has more right than anyone else in the universe to live in a lens of distrust toward other human beings? Jesus, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, the one who called us into being and watched us as we turned away from him day after day after day, The ones who, even upon believing in him, would struggle and turn away from him and deny that we know him. Who has more right to live in a lens of distrust? And yet, he would come in our midst. And when his tunic was taken, he would give his cloak. And when we made him walk a mile, he'd walk another one with us all the way to the cross, giving his life for us. Now, Jesus wasn't naive. He wasn't naive. In John chapter two, toward the end of the chapter there, he sees the crowd and he doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows what's in a man. He knows what we're capable of. He's not naive. And yet his default way of relating toward us was not suspicion, was not bad faith. He discloses himself. Reveals himself, spends time ultimately would give up his life. He risks love for us. (laughs) Realize that. He calls us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, yes. But he calls us to a way of being that is rooted in forgiveness. So this is the third thing. Give people a chance, and when they sin, which they will and which you will, Forgive. Remember what Jesus came to do for you. The way of being he calls you to, which is a way of forgiveness. Yes, they may have done that one thing back then, but Jesus died to forgive that. He died to forgive you. Not walking in naivety, not putting people in risk or in harm's way, we can nevertheless learn to walk in a way of grace and forgiveness, assuming the best when people turn and are seeking to honor the Lord, when people say something, we can assume the best of it. Paul says this in his chapter on love. Love always trusts. That's our mode of being that we learn in the Savior. And for those who have been misunderstood, you've been in that place, maybe you're there right now, you're enduring people who are willfully misinterpreting you, and no matter what you say, you can't get them to see you for who you are. I want you to hear today that the Savior knows. He knows it. He's been there. He's been accused of all manner of evil, of of being one who is in league with the devil himself. And he was accused of that for doing wonderful things, for freeing people from demonic oppression, for speaking God's truth. (laughs) He was crucified. And Jesus is with you and will never leave or forsake you, and he will speak a true word over you and advocate for you to the end. 
He'll also give you wisdom about when to speak, (laughs) when to defend yourself, when to not. Sometimes Jesus would speak and sometimes he was silent like a sheep led to slaughter. And when he was reviled, he reviled not in return, but entrusted himself to God who judges justly. (laughs) This is the path he would walk for us and for our salvation. He is beautiful. If you just see him, if you give him a chance, if you see who he is, it'll change you. And you'll learn a way of seeing truly, not a way of seeing with bad faith, with mournful criticism. And and so the invitation I have for you today is to take those filters off, to risk seeking to see Jesus in good faith for who he is. He will address your cynicism in the face of death. You're you're facing sickness. You're facing the death of a loved one. He will address your cynicism. It's a challenge to us, but Jesus told the mourners to go away when he went into that room. I don't think he was being mean-hearted, but he was offering the hope of resurrection. And despair was just not welcome in that room at that moment. And Jesus was going to fill it up with resurrection hope and reality. And you're invited to risk hoping in this Savior with this power and this goodness in the face of death, he will likely disappoint you. Some of you who, like Peter, have political aspirations for Jesus. You want to put Jesus on your party ticket, and he'll disappoint you because he won't toe the line for you guys. He'll say things that offend everybody. And he'll offer his kindness and gentleness. He will see the ones you don't want him to see. Imagine a mightier king. Imagine a kingdom that's stronger than swords. (laughs) A a kingdom that can penetrate beneath all of our radars, that could topple the Roman Empire, that could topple communist China, that could even topple us in our pride in secular America. A kingdom greater and mightier. This is the king that's here. We're invited to see him. And Jesus, he, we need to know this. If we live in that lens of suspicion toward Jesus, we need to know that he doesn't answer to us. He is the king who's come. Psalm 2 speaks of how the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed king, and they take counsel together about how they can burst off his cords as though his authority is bad, as though his authority is restrictive and keeps us from living the life we would want to live, not realizing that he comes in all of his authority to give us life and freedom and health and goodness eternally with God. (laughs) We miss who Jesus is when we assume the worst of him, and we're invited today, as the psalm says, to take refuge in him, to kiss him, to be in intimate relationship with our Lord, because his wrath is quickly kindled. (laughs) And there will be a day when we will answer for our bad faith interpretation of him, our bad faith interpretation of others, if we don't take refuge in him. He came to cover all that. He came to die for Pharisees, and for Gentiles, for sinners. Jesus matters today because he teaches us a new way to see. And he'll overcome our lenses if we'll just look to him. And if we look to him, there's this wonderful moment. We saw this in the last chapter with Matthew being called from his tax booth. But there's this moment when you realize how Jesus sees you. 
And that happens in this passage. Several times Jesus sees in verses 22, 23, and 36. And we're just gonna learn a new way of seeing. And first, in verse 36, what happens when Jesus sees us? What happens inside of him? It's, it's like he feels it in his gut. It's this great verb in the original language that it's like Jesus is gutted with compassion. Have you felt this? When your children have been hurt and they run home to you, have you felt this? Have you watched the news of Ukraine and the terrible things that are happening there? Have, have you felt this in your gut? This is how Jesus sees you and he sees me. This is how he sees these people. Because, what does it say? They are like sheep without a shepherd. He's alluding to Numbers 27 when uh, Moses was leading and shepherding God's people and then Joshua came to be the next shepherd and the Lord was going to appoint Joshua so that the people wouldn't be like sheep without a shepherd. The Lord cares for them and he provided for them someone who didn't just care about himself like the Pharisees, didn't just care about people coming to them, he didn't just care about being right, wanted the people to know God, (laughs) to know the security of walking in his ways. And Jesus sees all these poor people. They're surrounded by God talkers, but they have no shepherd, and he has compassion on them. And what does he do? He's moved to act. This is the pattern. When Jesus sees, he's gutted, and then he acts out of that compassion. And in verse 36, he's, he's moved in this particular way. He's moved, surprisingly, not to just take care of it himself, which he could. We should remember that Jesus doesn't need us for his mission. We aren't necessary to God. <laughs> that may challenge some of us, perhaps. Perhaps it frees some of us. <laughs> We're not necessary to him, but he delights to use us in his mission. And so he says to his disciples that the harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Next week, we'll talk about his particular charge to them as laborers to go into his harvest. But he begins by calling upon his people to pray that there would be more laborers in the harvest, that there would be more people that would shepherd people toward God, that would see people in Christ's stead, with his vision of compassion and love, having experienced his mercy, they would show that to others. We should pray for that, that it would happen in us and that the Lord would bring more so that more could come to know him, to be seen by him. Jesus sees, in verse 22, he sees a woman who's had a flow of blood for many years. It's... it's, it's not 100% clear, but it's very probable that uh, she had uh, some sort of issue that would be um, something that a woman would experience, something that would exclude her from community in the first century, something that would render her considered unclean, it's, and it's something that was going on for so many years. She couldn't stop it. And Jesus goes to her, and he sees her. And just think about this moment for a moment. Women, many times, in particular women like this one who would be isolated, dealing with all of the pain of that, how often has this woman been seen by a man with safe eyes? How often? 
Does she know what that's like? And yet she's seen with one who has no desire other than her complete shalom and flourishing. And what does he see? He sees a daughter. He sees her like a daughter of God. Take heart, daughter, he says. Your faith has made you well. And she sees, perhaps for the first time, a man looking upon her with pornless eyes, with only her good, with only love for her. This happens in Jesus when he sees us. And when he sees the despairing flute players, he rebukes, <laughs> perhaps gently. It's hard to know what the tone was because we weren't there, but he tells them to go away. We've spoken about this briefly already. But when he sees folks who are in mourning without hope, he would dispel that despair. And he would say, there's something more. And he would invite you to it. He sees it as it is. He invites you to himself. Jesus is moved out of compassion. And he acts for our good. That's what happens when Jesus sees us. And so then the next question we should ask is, what will happen if we learn to see like Jesus sees? If we, having been seen by him, and we watching him in the way he sees others, what will happen when we start to see others like that? There's a number of times, three times in this passage, where we're told to behold. It's actually a command. It's an imperative verb. Behold. And we've talked about this at least once before. When the Bible says that, look, behold, right? And let's try to do that with the grace of God and his help and his spirit. Let's seek to see like what Jesus would see. But before we even do that, we need to take a moment and think about this. I think about my day, and I'm convicted about this. How often I walk past people without thinking, that's a human being. <laughs> the Lord loves this person. That's a dear blood-bought lamb of Jesus. I'm a pastor, so I spend a lot of time around church folk. <laughs> and how often do I walk through life flippantly? How much time am I looking at a screen and not actually perceiving God's world as he's made it and the people around me? So there's an invitation here to see the world like Jesus would see looking for those whom God would have him see. Verse 18, behold, it says, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, my daughter's just died. He sees a bereaved man. He sees this man. What do we see? A ruler. Perhaps we say, well, he can take care of it. You know, he's, he's on the up and up. He's got life insurance. He'll be fine. We've all got problems. But Jesus follows. Verse 20. Behold, a woman who suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched him. See her in a new way. Men, see a daughter of God see someone Jesus would have compassion upon. See an image bearer. Someone who doesn't want to be misinterpreted. She only wants help. Verse 32. Behold a man who is mute because of demonic oppression. And note the first word there is man in the original language. Behold a man Mute, 
because he was demon-possessed. It's the original word order. Jesus saw a man. We see somebody who's kind of crazy. We see somebody who makes us nervous. We see somebody we would write off. Jesus saw a man, moves toward him, and heals him. And so in all this, I'm just inviting you to a new way of seeing. That's what happens when we see Jesus. I was alone in a cafeteria. It was called the Plaza 900 Cafeteria at University of Missouri. I'm sitting in a booth. I don't remember what was on my mind, but I expected college to be fun and easy, but I was lonely. I'd never felt loneliness like that before, leaving mom and dad. I I actually called my parents because I just wanted to hear their voices because I was lonely. That didn't happen before. So I'm sitting there alone in the booth, and this curly-headed guy sees me, and he sits with me and says, hey, can I sit with you? My name's Joel. And he starts getting to know me. And he invites me to his house. He lives off campus with a bunch of guys. And we have a movie night. And he invites me to a crew meeting, Campus Crusade for Christ. And he helps me to learn to look to Jesus in a new way in a moment when I was struggling to see him and where he was in my life and how to follow him. And in the midst of loneliness, it's like the Lord saw me through Joel and reached me in that moment. And I found out through Joel's story about the people that had seen him and had taken hold of him. And the Lord had used those people. And I just want to ask you, who do you see? Who has seen you? Do you remember that moment? Someone saw you? Maybe it hasn't happened. I hope you'll find yourself seen here. We, we want to know you here. You don't have to go through life unseen. And for those who are here, who have been seen by Jesus, who have been seen by someone sent in Jesus' name, I invite you to be on the lookout for those who are unseen, for those unnoticed, for those lonely, for those bereaved, for those who are misinterpreted, for those who maybe assume Christians will misinterpret them and think the worst of them. You have the opportunity to see them as they are and spend time and let them disclose themselves to you. And you can even disclose who Jesus is to them and who he's been to you and how he saw you. This is the opportunity we have in Christ, a new way of seeing. So I invite you to look to him today, Faith Church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he saw us and didn't turn away but came in his love, in his might and power to make us his own, to make us new. Help us to turn our eyes to him fully and truly today. We pray in his name, amen.